0: First John chapter five, verse thirteen. When we as we bring first John to a conclusion, it, it really hits home just how much John is dealing with the fundamental error that has been attacking that church, and that is the error that is presented in the heresy of Gnosticism. I've shared this with you every Wednesday. I'll still share with you one more time. Especially now, the Gnostics Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge believe that ultimately your connection to whatever salvation was, and they didn't have the understanding of salvation that that we would think you would have, but their understanding of enlightenment, their understanding of liberation, whatever it was, their understanding of being connected to God was based on right knowledge, that God was a mystery, a mysterious one that you had to search out. And that somewhere along the way, not because God revealed it, but because you somehow discovered the knowledge, you could have that sense of enlightenment or salvation. Never knew what that was, by the way. It was never published. There's no places where I know of anywhere that, that there was this revealing of what this knowledge was. And in addition to that, because of a complicated system of beliefs, they had a dualistic understanding of life. Dualism simply means that the physical and the spiritual are separated, and they do not necessarily relate to one another. The physical is evil, the spiritual is righteous or good. So such that when you achieved the right knowledge, the spiritual was liberated and would have this goodness. Because of that, two things: you could live, however you wanted to, physically, and it didn't affect your spiritual connection. But also because of that, there was a denial of the fundamental nature of Jesus, that he was God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. So we have seen in dealing with First John, especially the last few weeks, that John is hammering home that anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God in the flesh, is truly saved. He has hammered home the necessity to demonstrate our connection to God by loving one another, which is something that was missing in Gnosticism. And now we come to the end of 1 John, and 1 John 5.13 was probably, it's one of the first verses that I remember ever knowing or memorizing, and I remember as a young person, as a youth, whether middle school or high school, as as it's easy to do young growing up, when you grow up in the church and and, and you're surrounded by churchy things, wondering about how we can know we're saved, you know, you, you... you know, my, you know I, was, I was Baptist from, you know, nine months before I was born. I mean, that's all I ever knew. My mom was Baptist. Uh, my granddad, everybody on her side was Baptist. It's all I ever was, all I ever would want to be. It's all, I, you know, that's just that way. I grew up in the church. And so I've always been surrounded with being saved. I, I didn't do any hard, I didn't live a hard, sinful life. Um, you know, I was not a horrible sinner. Uh, you know, I just it's never was there. And so you struggle when you're raised that way. You can struggle with, how do I know? I mean, when you you come from certain backgrounds, it's easier, I'm not saying easier, but there's a sense of, okay, I I live this way, my life is radically changed. My life was never radically changed. So how do I know that struggle in 1 John 5, 13 was one of the key components in my spiritual development that helped me understand for sure the absolute guarantee of salvation. We Baptists like to say, once you're saved, you're always saved which is uh, true, it's a little bit passive. I prefer to say they're saints, as, as John Calvin said. I know people hate when I quote Calvin. I do it just to irritate people too. But he is right. The saints persevere to the end. The follower of Jesus is always a follower of Jesus. It never, never stops, no matter what happens. 1 John 5.13 says this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Similar to what you find in um, John the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter at the end, of the 20th chapter, 30 and 31, he talks about these things I have written. Easter Sunday, I'm preaching from that. I actually preached from it last year too at some point. It's such a pivotal verse. Um, but there are certain things he says in, in both his Gospel and his epistle. I have written some things for a reason. Several times in his epistle, he from the very beginning, he says, I have written some things to you. But here, coming to the climax of this letter, he says, without a doubt, to these Christians who were facing false teachers in an area that soon he will be writing another letter to that we call Revelation because they are being brutally persecuted. He writes to them, these things I have written that you may know you have eternal life. Now, this whole idea of knowledge is important because the Gnostics speak about a knowledge, a knowledge that is mysterious, a knowledge that people will not understand that the common person wouldn't know. John says, there is something all of you can know. If you're a follower of Christian, here's what you know for sure. And it's not some secret knowledge. It's not some hidden mystery of which you understand and become enlightened. It is the absolute certainty of the gospel. You may know you have eternal life. These things I write to you. And the idea that he says here, that you may know, is written in such a phatic way. That you may know for certainly that you believe in the name. The actual little preposition that we get the word in the name of uh, the Son of God is the preposition into. It speaks of movement. When I preached from John three sixteen in end of January, I talked about for God so loved the world that whoever might believe in him, literally is into him. Uh, he gave his the of God Son, you believe into him, speaks of movement. From the outside of faith, you move into faith. And this word means the same thing. You believe into, into the name of the Son of God. And the name signifies the power, signifies the very character. So here you have one of the key verses, I think, in all of the New Testament and therefore all of Scripture to understanding the nature of salvation. It is a stone-cold lock assurance. It is knowledge that is steadfast and sure. It is the Word, has the concept of reality that exists within you. I've written all these things so that you can know without a doubt You have eternal life. I know there are some who say you can lose your salvation. And some of you may have come from that background. And and God bless you. I don't know much what to tell you, how to help you if you deny what the scripture teaches. I know where they get that from. I know how they get to that. So here's what happens. You take, you take obscure passages. You take difficult passages. You take passages like, like you know people who have fallen away. And you pull them out of their context. And pulling them out of their context, and you put them in isolation. And then you come and say, well, here's what this has to mean. It has to mean you can lose your salvation. And then you ignore, you ignore, you pass over such clear, lengthy, scriptural teaching time after time after time. John is saying, without a doubt, there is no way to misunderstand this. No matter, there's no way to misconstrue this. He is saying, you can know you have eternal life if you believe in the name of the Son of God. And the idea that believing is an eternal, lasting declaration of faith, you simply cannot fall away. You may lack assurance because of your sin. You may be living as a believer in sin and you're like, well, I wonder. But that's on you because you're living a lousy life. There is simply no place within the context of the New Testament to believe that you can lose the salvation that God has given you. You did not earn it. You did not go claim it. You did not get it. God Gave it to you. Amen. And you can't forfeit it. Because you're not as strong as God. If you think you can lose your salvation. Because it's something you're doing. You are denying the very power and authority of God. It may be that you're not saved. A guy and I had a discussion one time. I said. Well you can't lose what you don't have. I grant you that. The issue may be you don't have salvation. At the end of the day. you're a believer, no, no, you have eternal life. This is the confidence for verse 14, the confidence, the assurance we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So these are things we know. Now, people take this out of context all the time. You know, he's not saying that as a believer you can ask him for whatever he wants and he's obligated to give it to you. He says we have a confidence which we have before him. The concept is we come before into the presence of the Father through the Son. We are in a right harmonious relationship with Him, and then we are asking for things. and Notice what it says: we are asking. In his will, according to his will. So we're searching out, we're seeking the absolute authority, the will of God. We're in a relationship with him where we're saved. And he says, when we ask in his will, what we're looking for is to seek his will. It's not, God, do this, do this, do this, I pray in your will, let it be done. Let your will be according to my will. We're not trying to change the scope of the will of God. We are understanding that our responsibility is to come into the presence to understand the will of God and to seek the will of God and to ask that what we desire be within the will of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying right before the cross. And he said, Father, if it's possible, take the cup of suffering I'm about to endure, take it away. And yet it cannot be what I might will, but only your will be done. And what Jesus was doing in their garden. And his will, he was already aligned with the Father. I don't think he wasn't. He was just saying, God, Father, my Father, whatever I want as a human. As the Son of God in the flesh, I want your will be done. And if this is your will, I'm right there with you in our prayer. Ultimately, in my prayer for the, hopefully it's my prayer daily. Is that God I be right where I need to be to be in your will. Whatever I need to change, whatever I need to adjust, I'll do that. You now, Doesn't mean I don't slip in a few things that I'd like to add in on the side. I get that. God you, know, if you want to help one of my church members win the lottery and tithe it all and dedicate part of that to the building, a part to me, that's okay. But my desire it's his will. And look what Paul, look what John says. He hears us. Does he not hear us if we don't pray to his will? No, he knows what we're praying. The word hear means hears and acts upon. It is hearing to the point of doing. He knows that we're conformed to his will. Of course he hears our prayer. Even, even when our prayer's messed up, he hears it. Then not act on it. So it says if we know he hears when we ask according to his will, then we have the request. Because we're, we're asking for his will to be done. This is such an important part of the Christian faith experience. One of the reasons that I look at 1 John as being, in essence, a, a, a good discipling book for a new believer. is because if someone goes through it with them, this stuff right here, man, it'll get you out right where you need to be. That she gets you off to a good start. I'm, I, I'm saved. I have confidence. And I'm praying that your will be done. And it's the heartbeat of my prayer life. Is that the will of the Father be done. And I be right there in that will. Then he comes to verse 18. Uh, excuse me, verse 16. This is crazy. This gets off. You have all that, then you have this. And, and this is so misunderstood. And when we're through, when I'm through explaining this to you, it'll still probably be misunderstood. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God's will for him. He's asking God will for him give life to those who commit a sin, not leading to death. But there's a sin leading to death. And I don't say he should make request of this. This is confusing. So in this thing of prayer, and he's saying, now, when you pray for someone, you're interceding. And uh, you pray for them. There's sin not leading to death. God's going to hear and he's going to work through that. But if they're committing a sin leading for death, just. Don't even bother praying for him. That's what it says. Now, this is, this is as confusing as verse 13 is clear. This is confusing. And most of the time, we just skip right over it because we don't understand it. So what does it mean? What is the sin leading to death? Well, we have to understand the context of the book. I've, all along, I have said the context of the book. He was writing to people who are dealing with false teachers. We also need to understand that we don't know everything that's happening in the life of these people. Uh, I'll probably, I think I'm going to say this Sunday, you know, when we read scripture, we, we come away with certain understanding. We could come away with things like, why is that happening? What's going on? We don't always understand what they're going through. We're not there. We don't, they don't tell us everything. So obviously they had some pretty clear idea what he's talking about. So he didn't have to clarify. So what is a sin leading to death? Could be several things. Could be people have already died. So don't pray for the dead. It's useless. Could be that. It could be the, um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned earlier in Mark and other places, or apostasy, apostasy being the renouncing of the faith. Don't, if someone gave the appearance of being a follower but have walked away, they haven't renounced all that. They were never truly a follower. Well, you know, there's no sense praying for them because the odds are they're, they're not going to come back. Pray for, other, pray for people who may become a follower. Or... The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which none of you have committed or can. I get that all the time. Can I commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? No, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is very simple. It's not complex. It's not difficult. It's exactly what the Pharisees were doing in Mark. It is attributing to Satan what Jesus did. That's what they did. But they said that Jesus cast out demons in the name of Beelzebub of demons. Jesus said to say that what I am doing, casting down the demon, which is clearly an act of God, and you know it because you're Pharisees, and to lie and give credit or say that I'm doing it in the name of Satan is the blasphemy of the Spirit of God, and you can't come back from that. That's pretty harsh. So none of you have done that. So don't worry about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. None of you committed apostasy. Could be that. Could be. And I lean towards this. It is the sin of the false teachers. John was harsh in his dealing with the Gnostics. Harsh with them, as he should be. They posed a real threat. A real threat to the church. So he was maybe saying this. You pray for the people. Remember, he's talking about people within the church. He's talking about people who are a part of the church. You pray. But those Gnostics, who what they're teaching, it's going to lead you away from Jesus and the understanding he is God in the flesh. Remember, he has said in chapter 4 and earlier, you confess that Jesus is God in the flesh. that He is the Christ. They're taking you away from that. And that's, that teaching is going to destroy lives. That teaching is a teaching of hell. That teaching is a teaching that leads to death. Don't waste your time. uh, praying for the Gnostic heretics who are destroying the church. Instead, pray for the people whose lives hang in the balance. Bring them over to the faith. In other words, don't waste your time and energy trying to redeem the false teachers. They have gone too far. Pray for the others. Does that seem harsh? Yeah. Because sometimes Paul, John, John, Peter, harsh. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church. Okay, I want to say they lied to the church about what they were given, but that's really not the issue. I like that we preachers like to make it. They lied to basically about the Holy Spirit's work in their life. They were lying to the Holy Spirit is what he said. So Peter said, you're going to drop dead. That seems kind of harsh. I've never tried that because I don't think it'll work, but yeah, thought about it more than once. Not here. Not to y'all. Not to y'all who are here now. I, mean, I haven't seen any of y'all ever. Paul <laughs> in Galatians just says, if you preach a false gospel anathema. he says, go to hell. You're damned if you do that. You're damned to hell if you preach a false gospel. In Corinthians, Paul said, the guy that's living with the stepmother, kick him out of the church until he gets it. Now bring him back when he's reclaimed. John, don't waste your time with these false teachers. Get rid of them. Cut them loose. Run them out. Sometimes it's tough. Those old apostles were tough. Evidently it worked. So he says, so, and it, or it could be that the sin is just unknown. I personally, this is just me, lean towards dealing with the Gnostics. This is kind of where I lean to. It doesn't matter. All unrighteousness, he says in verse 17, is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. So, you know, it, it's all sin. But he's just clarifying what he's talking about. Then he comes to verse 18. And he says, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, he's not saying that you don't, he's not saying you never sin, but... Is when he says, no one who is born of God sins, Me, no one who is born of God gives their life over to sin. Not that you don't commit acts of sin. This goes back to what he said in chapter 1. But you, we, we would understand. He's not saying that you never sin. He's saying that that's not the disposition of your life. The disposition of the life of the heretics is to sin. And to sin against God by denying Christ. He said, no one born of God lives this way. That's not, if you're truly of God, you're not given over to the false teaching of the heretics. You don't teach that. But God keeps the one, the evil one doesn't touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So he says, we know we are followers of God, but the power of the world lies in the evil one, lies in Satan. So these false teachers are part of that power of the world. They love the world. They, they love the riches. They love the wealth. They love the sensuality. They love the lifestyle. They cling to that world. And they try to bring that world in and infect the church. Listen, we see that today. We've always seen it. The church has always run the danger of the world, the secular culture, infecting it. It is that way in the Middle Ages. It just, the church, the church became corrupt. That's why Luther, you know, rebelled against it. And the church, and, and Calvin was rebelling against the church. They, they, were, they were reforming the church because of the secular attitudes of the world. It happens today. It happens in our culture. We, we have to be careful for us we engage the culture around us, but we cannot embrace it. doesn't mean we can't have nice clothes, nice cars, dress nice, but it means the attitudes, the philosophies. We don't compromise and corrupt the truth, the integrity of who we are and what we believe in order to satisfy the culture around us. It is the danger we face today. I think churches, there are churches in the past year who have slipped into that world of compromising themselves. Now, it's not, not my job to critique other churches. I don't. I always say I don't plow in another man's field. But that don't mean I don't occasionally peek over the fence to see if the crop looks okay. I may do that because if the crop looks good, I may want to steal some of their ideas. You know, it's church over there and they're blowing it going. I'm not above trying to find out what are you doing good so I can copy that. But if I look at their crop and it isn't very good, I don't want anything to do with them. I will distance myself from them as quick as I can. At least I catch whatever bow weevil came into their cotton field and they wanted to come over to mine. Distance yourself from that. Don't let the culture slip into the world or the other, slip into the church. And so he's warning against that. He says that's of, that's of the evil one. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter how it appears. And so as I've said numerous times in this study, listen, we, we love people. We have to. Sunday morning, I guarantee you, there were all types of people at our church Sunday morning. <laughs> sometimes, when you're up here on the platform, I see them. Brian sees them. Mike, you're in the 8:30 service. You don't see as many of them because uh, most of the 8:30 people are pretty bland and boring, to be quite honest. <laughs> you are, man. You come to the 9:45 service and 11 o'clock service, man. I tell you, you see, you see, you see a lot, and <laughs> sometimes. You see too much, to be quite honest with you. But you know what? We want to love people, even if their lifestyle is different. We want to reach out to people. We want to care about it. We want, we want to engage them and let them know they can come here. But we don't want to accept the sin of those people and say, it's okay. It's not okay. We're going to love you. But we're not going to say everything's okay. uh, (laughs) Brian and I had a, we were telling the staff about, well, say Brian and I had the privilege and who was singing Sunday? Anybody y'all singing up here? I'm playing, you playing? None of y'all were playing. Well, then it was just Brian and I had the privilege of seeing some unique things Sunday. And what we do is we love people even though they're a little bit different. We care about them, we love them. Verse 20 says this. And we know that the Son of God has come. And he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Where does knowledge come from? Son of God. And we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ, and the true God, in eternal life. We have knowledge of what really matters. Because God has given it to us. He's given it to us. It's not some secret knowledge that we have to search everywhere to find. God reveals it to us. He reveals it to us in the pages of the gospel and what John is writing. He reveals it to us in all of his word, especially in the New Testament, of how to come to Christ, how to come to salvation. It's, it's that way. And he, give, he reveals it to us by his grace. And he gives us the faith. And John's saying, what it knowledge It's not something hidden. And some craziness of the Gnostics is right there for you to have and know. And it's in his son. And this is what is true. It's absolute. And we can know that. Yeah. And then he, then he ends. He ends his book. Little children, that's the beloved. Guard yourselves from idols. And I always thought, that's just a weird way to end it. But not like, see you later, goodbye. You know, you know the, praise God, like Paul, have a doxology. It's like, he, he had an extra thought, he never got to it. And so he just ended it this way. He couldn't finish it and sent the letter. But it is actually an important ending. Because he was writing to people who came predominantly from a Gentile background. And they came from the world of paganism. Where idolatry ran rampant. Let me clarify just for a moment what idols. I, I hear people say all the time, you know, I made money an idol or I made you know, fame an idol or I made this an idol or that an idol. You may seek after money and you may seek after fame and whatever and it, it may become like a snare or like a god to you, but that's not an idol. <laughs> Idolatry is very specific. and I, I am of this opinion. It is when you take things and you fashion them into gods and goddesses or representatives and you bow down before them. Most of what we sometimes, you know, for some reason as Christians in 21st century America, 20th century America, we want to make sure everything in the Bible fits us so we come up with all the idolatries that we have. We have different idolatries. Unless you bow down to an image that is supposed to represent a god or goddess, you don't commit idolatry. You commit sin. If you, you know, pursuing money is greed, it's sin. Um, You know, you you may have a pride issue. Uh, All of that is your desire to be the God of your own life. That's a fundamental issue. But in in John's day, they actually had the danger of worshiping idols. So what he's saying is don't fall back. In, in, In moving away from Gnosticism, if things get too complicated, don't make the mistake of just going back to your old lifestyle of paganism. that is real for us. For us, don't just abandon everything and say, "I'm going to go back to my old sinful ways of living for myself." Okay. Don't. But also, don't make the mistake, <laughs> because I, I, don't know, I don't know how to say this nicely. Sometimes. You know, people say, "Well, I made such and such an idol, and I've and I've since rejected that, and it's no longer an idol in my life." That's not what that means. You didn't you didn't make something an idol and reject it as an idol. So, that's that's not what that is. Uh, American Idol, you may watch that. That's different. That's a whole different thing. You know, idolizing somebody's whole something else. Well the danger for us is to drift into and, and, and for them moving away from gnosticism the danger was to drift back into paganism. And, and John didn't go into details. He says, just don't go that way. I've given you truth. So here John has given them in this beautiful little letter, this little epistle that you can read in probably 10 minutes. He has given them what the fundamental value of being a Christian is. He said, I saw it. I touched it. I heard it. It's Jesus. Follow Jesus. Confess him. And love him and love one another. And if you will spend your life pursuing Jesus as Lord of all. And if you will love one another and love God. You will live the Christian life. Don't follow every silly Crazy teaching or whim that comes along. Don't read every new book that comes out that seems to be the miracle cure of understanding Christianity. <coughs> the Shack <coughs> is an example of that. I'm sorry. Don't follow The Shack. Don't follow Joel Osteen. Don't follow, whatever. what's the new book that just came out, Joe? You were reading it the other day in your office. What was that? that a, something, some book about prayer or something. What was that? Now, prayer of Jabez was a while back. That was also kind of a silly book, huh? Prayer, Je- talking with Jesus, wasn't that it? I don't know. Don't do all that. Here's just what you do. Just come to the New Testament. If a fairly uneducated group of peasants and pagans could understand the works of the New Testament, surely people as intelligent and highly educated and as lightened as you can do likewise. That is the source of our knowledge of Jesus. So read first John. And in the next couple of reads, read be second and third John as well. Does anybody have any questions or comments? I didn't mean to offend you if you love the shack. I apologize. It's always. A, but I don't take back what I said. Garbage in, garbage out. Anything else? Questions, comments? Yes, sir. You mentioned in 16 uh, several things that you thought might be the sin that leads to death. And I think you kind of settled I didn't say what I thought might be the sin that leads to death. I said there will serve a possibilities of what might be the sin that leads to death. Do you, do you think it's more, since this whole book is basically against Gnosticism, but that's probably what he was talking about here. I would lean, I would lean towards the sin that leans to death is the false teaching of the Gnostics and other false teachings like that because it leads people away from Christ to eternal death and rejection. Yes. Okay, so in 17, he says there's a sin not leading to death. Yeah. So he's at least recognizing their sin around and among the church. And- yeah, he recognized that all the way back in chapter one, Yeah. yeah. Now, then it goes on in 18, and if you're born of God, you don't sin. Yeah. Do you think that maybe he's talking about you don't act like these Gnostics? Okay. You so what act? I said, what I said, well, look, oh, I'm going to go back through that. He's not saying that we don't sin at all. He's saying that we don't give our lives over to a life of sin. The example of that would be what the Gnostics were doing would be an example of that. But he's, what he's saying is, there is sin that doesn't lead to death. He's not talking about all of that. But what he's saying is, while we all sin, we don't have, as followers of Jesus, we're not given over to a life of sin. So he doesn't want to excuse them and say, well, I can do all these other things, it's okay, because it doesn't lead to death. He's saying the follower of Christ doesn't live a life of sin. The sin in my understanding of the passage that leads to death, would be that of the Gnostics. If you don't believe that, then it's whatever else it is. So that's the, that's the connection that's made. Does that help? That, that's kind of into this. It says, does not it's kind of emphatic. Okay. It is emphatic. That, there's no bearing on the understanding of it, though. So what he's saying, obviously we sin. Can't say we don't sin. In chapter one, he just makes it clear we all sin. But he's talking about giving over to the life of sin. That would be understood by them. If you read, like when you sit down and read the whole book in 10 minutes, and you have the continuity of thought, going back to chapter one, that continuity carries over. Of course we sin, but we're not given over to a life of sin, kind of like the Gnostics are, like that way. Does that help? All right, anything else?